Your 13-year-old comes to you with a great idea. She and her friends want to do something, and immediately you have serious reservations. feel it strongly in your gut. Your heart races at the thought of what could happen and every rational brain cell screams, you want to do what? No freaking way! But before you can express your personal truth, you gaze into her hopeful face. She's asked so nicely for permission. Not a hint of the attitude you've been getting recently. Plus, you know what's in store if you say what you really feel. <sighs> Parenting is full of tough choices. Do you express your feelings honestly at this moment? About her plan? About your conflicting emotions? About your fear of her rejection if you tell her no? Or do you blow off your personal truth? Rationalize away your gut? Pass on the inevitable confrontation and smile as convincingly as possible and say, Okay, honey. If one of your parenting objectives is to raise a young adult who is true to herself, then you've just missed an opportunity to show her what that looks like. I'm not saying that parents are totally responsible for the trouble their tweens and teens have figuring out how to be themselves. <laughs> no, the silent curriculum in most schools teaches kids to do whatever it takes to be popular. Still, we can empower our kids by being the kind of parents who actually respond to people, situations, and life in authentic ways. I surveyed a bunch of teens while I was working on my book, Be Confident in Who You Are. Here's what I asked them. Describe a time when you were very afraid, angry, or sad, but you weren't willing to show it. What did you say or do instead? How'd you feel about pretending? Listen to this from a 14-year-old. All I usually do is hide it and act happy, which is what I do both at school and at home. If I have problems at home, then at school it won't show, and vice versa. I never really speak about things like this to my parents. But there are times I confide in my good friends. If I'm angry, then I try to close my eyes and not think about it, or look out the window. The same for when I feel sad. When I feel afraid, I just think about other things. I don't feel anything about pretending when I do it now since I'm used to it. It's like my second personality, my mask. It's what I do, and always shall do, probably. I don't really like pretending, though. It's a bad thing. You're just hiding your true self so others can't see you. And they're liking you probably for the wrong reasons. However, I'm afraid of showing my true self so much because I don't want to be hurt or rejected. So pretense is my life, really. That's what I do all the time. It's what I'm made of. Masks, fake personalities and words, and lies. She was more articulate than most, but what she expressed was fairly common. Look. No matter what you do, your kids are probably going to have some challenges in this area. They'll be fighting against their own intense need to fit in. But it's likely they'll have an easier time of it if you personally provide them with a living, breathing example of an authentic adult. This is Annie Fox, and this is Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. Today's show, want to be yourself? Go for it.
My guest today is Mike Robbins, author of Be Yourself, Everyone Else Is Already Taken. Prior to becoming an author, speaker, and coach, Mike was drafted right out of Stanford and played three seasons of professional baseball for the Kansas City Royals before arm injuries ended his playing career while he was still in the minor leagues. After his athletic career was cut short, Mike received training from the nationally acclaimed Coaches Training Institute. He uses this background, knowledge, and experience to impact the individuals and groups with whom he works. Hi, Mike. Welcome to Family Confidential. Hey, Annie. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Oh, good. I'm, I really enjoyed your talk at Book Passage in Corte Madera a couple of weeks ago, and I was very excited to have you talk with me at this level, one-on-one, about your book. First of all, I have to tell you that when I read the title, Be Yourself, Everyone Else Has Already Taken, it just cracked me up because it's so true. And in my work, which is mostly with middle school students who probably have one of the hardest challenges when it comes to being authentic in a group, I thought, okay, everyone is already taken. Middle school students and their parents could really use some help in figuring out how to comfortably be themselves. So the first question I want to ask you is, when you use the word authentic, what do you actually mean? Well, that's a good question. You think I would know since I just wrote a whole book about it, but I, I actually find it a little difficult to define because I think it does vary for each of us, not only based on who we are, but also based on where we are at whatever stage in our lives. I mean, you know, you work with middle school students and I'm sure what they think of authentic at this moment in their lives, like we all did when we were in middle school, will change quite a bit as they grow. But I think in a general sense, you know, we all sort of understand authenticity to be real and genuine. And the way that I talk about it in my book and work with it in my own life and with my clients and when I'm, you know, speaking and doing workshops, it's really about being transparent, being vulnerable, being open, being real about how we feel, about what we think, about what's true for us. And that means both the light and the dark, you know, the good stuff in us and the stuff that we don't think is so good, but just kind of letting it all hang out and just being who we are. And where does appropriateness come in there? Because You know, I remember at the beginning of the human potential movement, there were things called encounter groups Mm -hmm. and people got on the hot seat and the idea was you let it all hang out, how you felt about this person. And my recollection of, of those sessions were that they at times could be rather brutal. Yeah. Well, and look, I mean, I think it runs the gamut. You know, one of the things I talk about in the beginning in the introduction of Be Yourself, Everyone Else Has Already Taken, is looking at what authenticity is not. And I think we have notions in our mind of it has to do with, well, I'm just going to say everything I think in every moment. I'm going to tell people how I feel. I'm going to give people feedback. And that can absolutely be part of being authentic. And sitting on the hot seat in an encounter group, as people did maybe in the 70s in the human potential movement, I've been in workshops like that and have gotten some brutally honest feedback at times I didn't necessarily want. (laughs) But it can be incredibly valuable if it's desired, if it's delivered in a way that actually could make a difference. You know, so a lot of it, I mean, the the word appropriate, I think, is an important one, but also a tricky one, because I think, Annie, you and I and most of us and probably everybody listening use that word as a justification to not say and do stuff we really want to because it would be inappropriate or we're worried about how it might be perceived. So we just have to be careful. Now, 
again, if us walking around in life telling people how we feel and what we think and giving them feedback is damaging our relationships and making things not work for us, we probably need to take a look at how we're doing it. But I don't think there's too many people in life running around being too authentic in a way that's becoming problematic versus most of us who are withholding a lot of stuff that we really believe in and stuff that we want and things we'd like to say and feelings that we have that we just keep inside because we don't think they're acceptable and appropriate to share. So my challenge to people is to share more. And if and when we step over the line, which we will and we all have in life, we'll know and we can deal with that authentically as well. That's a really good point. So uh, what I hear you saying is it it has to do with balance and it has to Mm -hmm. do with being able to take a measure of maybe the intention behind what you're sharing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. My experience with that is that if your intention is to communicate your authentic self, how you're feeling, and not to bash someone over the head, then you're likely to have a good communication. Absolutely. I'll give you an example or story. Because I talk a lot about in the first part of the book about why it's hard to be authentic, what stops us from really being honest. And my wife, Michelle and I had a pretty poignant uh, experience of this right around the holidays. Her grandmother, 90 years old, wasn't well um, as we moved into the holiday season this year. And it was looking like it was, you know, probably the grandma was going to die at some point relatively soon. So the family was, as you can imagine, you know, sad about this, upset. It was kind of a new experience. My wife's grandfather had died 10 years earlier, but hadn't gotten sick, had just had a heart attack and died. And my, and her grandmother, Christian scientist, so she'd literally like never been to the hospital except to have three children. So the family didn't even really know how to deal with her being sick. And we were getting ready to have Christmas Eve dinner at my father-in-law's house. And my wife's family, wonderful people, really sweet, kind, caring, not so much into expressing their emotions or dealing with difficult stuff or conflict, which isn't necessarily how my family is. So it's always been kind of an interesting challenge for me at times to be around the family. But as we were getting ready for Christmas Eve, I said to my wife, I said, hey, babe, tonight when we get together at some point, and it may feel a little awkward and I'm not sure how to exactly do it, but I really want when we sit down for dinner to have everyone, you know, go around and and acknowledge grandma, like do kind of a appreciation circle, which is something that I do in my work, in my workshops. It's what my whole first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, was all about. So I'm actually pretty comfortable facilitating that kind of a thing, whether it's personally or just with a group of people that I'm working with. But as the evening kind of got going and we were all there, there was so much tension and stress and a lot of unexpressed emotions and people feeling a lot of things about, but no one's saying anything. You just kind of feel the tension in the room. By the time we sat down for dinner, I was already feeling not only disconnected, but but very self-righteous, like how people weren't acting the way they should and how come no one was saying anything. This was all going on in my head. I wasn't saying it out loud. And I could sort of feel it from most of the rest of the family members. And I decided actually not to do that for I was feeling awkward about it or a little nervous about it and, and she was having a pretty good day so I also didn't want to sort of stand up and do this big dramatic well grandma we know you're going to die and we <laughs> want to tell you how much we love you know it just felt awkward and as we drove home that night Michelle and I were both really disappointed with how the evening had gone because it felt like a missed opportunity for all of us to connect and the the you know lack of expression and authenticity or whatever it was just felt stressful and, and everyone seemed stressed out and I was also disappointed that I hadn't said anything and we hadn't done that appreciation circle for grandma. Well, she died five days later. Mm. And you know, when we found out that she passed away, we were obviously very sad about her passing. And 
I just immediately thought to myself, man, I can't believe I didn't do that. And, you know, we got together with the family in the few days after she passed away and, and started one of the blessings that's come out of her passing, which often happens, I think, in the face of death, is that we have a tendency to get more real, which is actually one of the things I appreciate about death and about memorials and funerals and kind of the rituals around death is it often opens up a space of authenticity. And one of the things I said to the family, I said, listen, I just want to apologize because I was being sort of self-righteous on Christmas Eve and also uncomfortable and I got nervous and I didn't say some things I wanted to say and I really wanted us all to acknowledge grandma and I just felt uncomfortable doing that. And you know, almost everyone in the family in some way, either when we've got together or since then has said to me, not in a way to sort of have it be like a guilt trip thing, but like, Mike, we really wish you would have done that. And I share that long example or story, Annie, because I think that there's so many times in life that we get scared to say something or nervous or it feels inappropriate or awkward or we're not really sure how to bring it up. And, you know, while it's not usually quite as dramatic as the person dies five days later, sometimes that does happen. And there's often times we don't get those moments back to say and do the things we really want to. So part of the process of becoming more authentic in life is actually confronting all the places and ways in which we aren't authentic with some empathy and compassion so that we can start to move past that and actually be more real and authentic in our lives. I know in your book you talk a lot about fear being a barrier. Mm -hmm. And I know for myself that's absolutely true. And with my work with kids, when I ask them, what keeps you from being yourself at school? Yeah. And they come up with all kinds of really reasonable explanations. Yeah. It's just like, if I did that, I'd get clobbered. Are you kidding? Right. You know, be myself. You know, I, I can't do that in my school. That's, that, that's not, no one can do that. And if you're very, very popular, maybe, but even then you kind of have to watch it. So knowing the environment that they spend six or eight hours a day, day in, 180 days a year, I sometimes find that it's an uphill battle. They understand what I'm saying. They wish with all their hearts that they could let go of the fear and be more true to themselves, wear what they want to wear, be friends with who they want to be friends with, say what they're really feeling, stand up to bullies. And yet there's the other reality what happens if I do that? These are not necessarily ungrounded fears. These are self-preservation fears. So what do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, you know even better than I do, given the work that you do. Ah, but you were in middle school at one point. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And what do you, and what do you remember? <laughs> and no, well, I mean, the, here's the thing I think about, a couple of things. And I actually do some work with teens myself. And I'm on the board of a fabulous organization that I think you're familiar with. I think we may have talked about it called Challenge Day. Yes. It's based here in the East Bay in, in the Bay Area where you and I both live. So I, I'm sensitive to and, and very aware of some of the challenges that teenagers, particularly middle school kids, face. Now, I personally hated middle school, as I think a lot of us did. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was hor horrendously awful in, on so many levels. Um, and one of the things that I hated about it was how awful I felt about myself. And, you know, I was a pretty popular kid and I was a good athlete and I was class president, a good student. I mean, I did all the things you were supposed to do to be happy and successful. And I was relatively miserable during those years. And a lot of it had to do with 
A, I didn't know who the heck I was, as I think a lot of times that's the case when we're that age. And B, there was so much fear of speaking up, of being myself, of doing things I wanted to do, of you know not being liked. Or, you know, I remember I transferred schools after seventh grade and went to a different middle school up in the hills in Oakland where I grew up and very different environment. And I happened to be right in that moment of, you know, I grew about seven or eight inches. I got braces. I broke out in horrible acne, the whole bit. And of course, the kid that I ended up becoming best friends with, who, by the way, to this day is still my best friend, is like one of the best looking men you'll ever see in your life. And he was that way when we were 13. So there I was feeling like the ugly duckling next to this guy that every single girl in the school thought was the most handsome kid ever. So, you know, it just added to my own story of there's definitely something wrong with me. But I think most teenagers have that feeling. But here's the thing. I actually think most of us as grown-ups feel like that in life. It's just easier to see it in teens. And we give teens all kinds of advice. Well, be yourself. Well, trust yourself. We'll do what's right for you. And, and that may all be well and good. But the question for us to ask ourselves and how we can influence the teenagers, particularly the preteen, young teenagers, middle school age kids in our lives, is to actually embody and model that ourselves. There's only two ways to influence people, whether we're talking about a 12 or 13 year old kid in middle school or our spouse or anybody else. And that is to model the behavior, model what we want, you know, be the change, as Gandhi said, or give genuine, heartfelt vulnerable feedback to that person in a way that they might hear it and actually might motivate them. But those are really the only two ways we can influence people. And I get this question asked, Andy, to me a lot, particularly when I'm speaking and someone will raise their hand and say to me, how do I get my teenager to be more authentic? Or when I'm talking about gratitude and appreciation, which I often talk about, how do I get my teenager to be more appreciative, more grateful? And that's always what I say in response is those two things, model it yourself and give them some real, genuine, vulnerable feedback, not a lecture, but really tell them how you feel. That's great advice, and I, I would totally agree with that. That's the way you do it. They look at you, and how are you living your life? Mm -hmm. Are you telling them something that you're not doing? And they're watching, Yep. even though they may not let you know that anything that you say at this point in their life has any meaning for them at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they are watching, and, oh, yeah. and it does it does pay off if you have established for yourself that this is an objective of mine. Yes. This is, I am a work in progress, and this is the direction that I'm moving towards in my own personal development. And to talk about that as a family, I think, is incredibly valuable. My goodness, if my family, when I was 11 and 12 and 13 years old, had had the wherewithal back then to have those kinds of conversations, I would have been really tuned in. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and the thing about it is, I think, and, and one of my issues, look, and, and I'm a big believer in school and education, and it's important, but I've always found, any, and, for, and this started when I was in middle school myself, sitting in class thinking, why are we learning all this stuff that seems completely irrelevant to life when I'm over here feeling terrible about myself, wanting people to like me, wondering about sex, wondering about all these things. You Who know, cares and I was, about algebra? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm supposed to learn about algebra or whatever the heck they're teaching. You know, and that stuff is important, of course. But it's like, you know, here I was as an 11, 12, 13-year-old boy being raised by my mother who did the absolute best she could. But she wasn't interested, willing, or able to talk to me about puberty, about sex, about any of the thoughts and feelings that were going on inside of me. You know, I mean, my mom actually had been a teacher for a good part of her life, but she was, you know, 
an Irish Catholic girl from Rhode Island who didn't want any part of being divorced and got divorced when I was three and my sister was seven and was in a tough situation. And not every single kid in middle school is dealing with the same circumstances, some more severe than mine and many not so much. But either way, are we really engaging with them in a genuine way, in an honest way? And sometimes, and this is hard, I know, and look, I'm a new parent, so my girls are three years old and eight months, so I get a few years before I get to deal with having preteens and teenagers in my home. But I think it's hard for all of us as parents because our egos get in the way and we think we should be able to talk to our kids. And sometimes, and I'm sure you know this and probably give this advice, it's not often the parents that can really get through to the kids, particularly at certain ages. And as tough as that may be, and it doesn't mean we give up on them, we got to just surrender to the fact that maybe it's someone else that gets to share the important message that our child needs to hear and what's the goal really is for them to get that message or for them to hear it from us. And that's very true. And it's not just one message or one source of information. And as, as you've pointed out so wisely there, even as the father of young kids, you, you got it right. Yep. That there needs to be people in the family who are walking the walk, whether or not they can sit down and have those kinds of conversations easily with a preteen, if the preteen is even listening, right? Um, and you don't want to shove it down their throat. But as long as you're walking the walk and let the kid know that you understand what they're going through on some level, that you've been there on some level. Yep. You don't know exactly what their experience is, but you can see that they're not happy. Right. And that's a place where you can connect with your kid. And absolutely, if there are more adults out there who work with kids who can come from this place, then the message gets reinforced. And that's, of course, what you want. Assuming that you have a stated objective right. as your parenting goal, that I want my kid to be sincere and true to themselves yeah. and make choices that reflect who they really are. Yeah. And you know, what's amazing as we're talking about this, and I mentioned Challenge Day earlier, and I'll just mention it again, because there's, there's an exercise in my book that I use in my own workshops that I actually got from Rich Nivon, who are the founders of Challenge Day and very good friends of mine. And I was first introduced to it by going to a number of their Challenge Day workshops, which they do with middle school and high school kids all over the country. And the metaphor is that of an iceberg, which, you know, it's overused metaphor for sure. But the idea is that, you know, we all walk around and teenagers especially, but all of us, Letting just the little, you know, little bit, the little tip of the iceberg pops up above the surface of the water. You know, maybe 10% we show up who we are. The rest of the iceberg is down below the waterline, and that's kind of a metaphor for how we are in life. And the goal is to start to be willing to lower the waterline and share more of who we really are. And the stuff that's down there isn't all bad stuff. I mean, sure, it's doubts and fears and insecurities and worries and stuff we don't want people to know about us, but it's a lot of goals and dreams and passions. And again, this is true for a 12-year-old just like it's true for a 55-year-old and, and everywhere in between. But the, the exercise is really powerful. It's that we sit around in a circle. You can do this one-on-one. -on -one. You could do this with your teenager. You could do this with your spouse. You could do it with anybody. And create a safe container, and each person has a minute or two to repeat the phrase, if you really knew me, you'd know this about me. And just keep repeating that, if you really knew me, you'd know. And there's no pressure that you have to share something shocking or bizarre or whatever. It's just to share authentically. And what happens in those challenge day workshops that's so powerful, specifically any related to what we're talking about here in terms of 
connecting with teens, is there are adults in the workshop. So in every small group, when they break the kids up, there's an adult. It may be a principal, maybe the teacher, counselor, parent, someone from the school community sits in that circle and doesn't just facilitate it. They participate and share themselves honestly, not about when I was 12. No, it's right now. Here's mm-hmm. And the, what happens, and I see it happen every time I do a Challenge Day workshop that blows me away, is the kids look and basically every single kid in that room, there's usually about 100 kids, has some version. They'll say this at the end. I can't believe the parents and the teachers and everyone feel this way too. Meaning that we all have fears and doubts and insecurities and stuff that we're struggling with and hiding from other people and all of that. And when we let it out, it's this great equalizer that we realize even though a 60-year-old and a 12-year-old or a 35-year-old and an 11-year-old don't maybe have a lot in common in terms of what they're going through in life on a daily basis, as human beings, we're way more alike than we are different. And most teenagers think they're in their own world by themselves and no one understands. But when they actually hear it for real, not just a story about when I was your age, I used to do this, but really the real feeling, it opens something up and they go, oh my goodness, I'm not alone. It's such a missed opportunity for educators and parents Mm -hmm. when they don't come from that place all the time because this other stuff that we seem to be very intent on teaching our kids, oh, don't chew with your mouth open. Um, right. You know, write that thank you note on time for Auntie's gift. Right. <laughs> All these, these things, these polite, civilized things seem to only polish up the veneer. When you have an opportunity to, sure, teach those things to your kid. Yep. It's, that's nice too. But the other part of it is the juice of the relationship. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, one of the things and one of the pieces of my background is that I used to be a professional baseball player. I played baseball in college at Stanford. I got drafted by the Kansas City Royals after I was done at Stanford and signed a pro contract um, ever since I was little. You know, all I ever wanted to do was play in the major leagues. And unfortunately, my third season in the minors with Kansas City, I blew my arm out, my pitching arm, I tore ligaments in my elbow, and my career ended. But from the age of seven until the age of 25, Baseball was like the primary focus of my life. Now, as that, as a backdrop or sort of an environment, even if people listening don't have that experience or can't relate, you can kind of fill in the blanks of sort of what the environment around a baseball locker room would be like in a bunch of guys. And, you know, and I was this emotional, passionate little kid who always felt like I was weird and different, as I think we all do in some way, but I really felt different in those. And I loved baseball, but I didn't sort of fit the mold. But my favorite day of the baseball season from the time I was really little all the way up into my early 20s when I was playing professionally was the last day. And usually on the last day you would lose, which I didn't like to lose. I was a very competitive kid and you know, when we'd lose and when the season would end, it would be sad and disappointing. But the reason that I loved the last day was two reasons. First of all, the pressure was off. So the whole season there was a lot of pressure and jockeying for position and all that stuff. And then the moment the season ended, it was kind of like someone pulled the plug on that whole thing and it sort of ended, which I appreciated because it would get stressful for me. The second and more poignant reason that I really loved the last day is that some of the guys, not all of them, and not every single year, and it would vary depending on the guys I was around, they would cry. And no one made a big deal about it. A lot of times guys would sit in their locker or put their glove over their face or sort of, it was a very private thing that most of the guys kind of tried to hide from the other guys. But I would see it and I would feel it. And I always appreciated it because it made me feel like I wasn't crazy. 
because I cried a lot or at least wanted to. But as a young man, starting as a boy and then a teenage boy, and it really happens in adolescence to young men in our culture, I was trained directly and indirectly, boys don't cry. And that message, even though we've really improved on it and we're getting away from it, it's still there. And little boys and teenage boys do it to each other. And then a lot of grown men who probably have good intentions and even some women and mothers do the same thing and we get this message. So what happens, and this is specifically for boys, but girls get all kinds of different messages in different ways. Again, it starts to build this box around us of how we're supposed to be. And what ends up happening is we don't feel as we're teens and then as we grow into adults, the permission to just be who we are. And I say all the time, this is one of the things I'm most passionate about when I'm speaking and talking to people, particularly when I have the opportunity to speak to teens or to athletes or to young men of any age. I always say to them, look for what it's worth. You have full permission to cry and break down around me if you want to. Now, you don't have to, and I'm not telling you <laughs> it's, it's necess- a necessity, <laughs> but it's really important. And I can't tell you how many even grown men will come up to me and say, wow, you know, I don't think anybody's ever said that to me. No one's given them permission. Yeah. They, they have to give themselves permission. Yes. And there is, then back to the fear again. Yep. What, what do I risk when I let this emotion come to the surface? When I say to someone... I love you, mm-hmm. or I'm, I'm worried about you. Yeah, yeah I, I know you can take care of yourself, and I'm still worried about the choices you're making. Yeah, These kinds of things make us vulnerable, and for whatever reason, all the social conditioning, all of the societal norms of what's cool yep. makes us afraid to take that risk. Yeah, And I think the loss in terms of the full spectrum of the way we could be living is what really suffers. And what I see often in the parent-child connection is that we're all doing this little one step forward, two steps back. As, as our kids get to be middle school, oh, we're, we're right in there with them when they're younger. Right. You know, the hugging, the, the heartfelt connection is all seems to be very safe and free-flowing. And then when they get to a certain age when it's not cool to give your parent a hug goodbye in front of your friends, when you get dropped off at school, when it's not cool to show that you're enthusiastic as a kid about something that's going on at home because you're too cool to show that. And from the parent's perspective, Again, it's the worry thing because kids don't want to hear that you in any way mistrust their ability to take care of themselves. So when you show them that little catch in your voice when they're about to go and do something for the first time, they will stomp it right down. Come on, Ma, you don't have to worry. I'm fine. And so you go, okay, okay, I won't worry. But the truth is there is there is a worry in you. And for me, as someone who who is kind of out there on the table all the time, yeah. I've given it up because it's it's too false, and my family doesn't buy it anyway. So yeah, <laughs> so it, I guess it has to do with what's on the other side of the fear. Right. If I show them, yeah, I know you're okay, and I still want to give you this one extra hug. Right. What happens? Well, I think it's great, though. I mean, again, you and I and every parent on the planet. And whether people have their own children or not, you know, we're so busy, I think, in life, particularly as it relates to our children, 
trying to do it right instead of just being ourselves, trusting ourselves. And you know what? You know, we screw it up all the time. That's okay. <laughs> I mean, I remember, now again, my girls are really young, so I've only been doing this a couple years. But we were in the hospital with Samantha when she was like two days old. And I was just going through all kinds of emotions up and down and sideways and euphoric and terrified and the whole bit. But I grabbed her as it, and she was a little bit early, tiny little baby, not even seven pounds. And I remember holding her in my arms and I took Michelle, my wife, and I put my arm around her. And I said, okay, we need to have a Robbins family team huddle right now. This is like my baseball comeback, <laughs> right? And I, I grabbed and I, here I'm talking to the baby and I'm talking to Michelle and I said, listen, here's the deal. None of us have any friggin' clue how to do this. And that's okay. That's what we all came to learn here. And I said to Samantha, I said, sweetie, you chose to come in first. We may not have any other children. I don't know, but you're our first. So we're going to screw all kinds of stuff up with you. Not because we're mean and not because we're trying to, but just because that's what we're going to do. And it was funny because Michelle was laughing and I was laughing and then we almost even started to cry. It was, but I, cause I felt it really strong. Like I wanted to say it in that moment. It was like, I got some kind of message from somewhere to say this right now, <laughs> but I come back to that. And I think about that from time to time, just even in the three plus years since she's been alive, when I have those moments or Michelle and I have those conversations, like, well, what the heck are we doing? We don't have a clue. And I just think that again, it's not Samantha's job as she grows older to work that out for me or for Michelle, for us to dump all of our fear and anxiety and insecurity about being parents on her. But I think it is important that we are able to own that. See what happens, I think, and this probably happens more. And again, I'll get to experience this directly in a few years as our children get older and become teenagers. You know, what ends up happening is when, and I used to see this happen with my mom, with me, because I was her baby boy, and then my sister went off to college, and it was just the two of us in the house, is as parents, we get our feelings hurt, we get disappointed by our children, we put a lot of stock into their approval of us, even though we don't like to admit it, and when they're rude to us, or say what they say, or do the normal things they do when they're 13 years old, we get all offended, and then instead of owning that we got our feelings hurt, and not that there's anything wrong with that, we're human beings, we get into this self-righteous mode about what's wrong with my son or daughter or you know, wherever we go, instead of really dealing with what's true right now, is I feel like a failure as a mother or a father. I feel like my child doesn't like me or I don't know what to do. And I don't often, now not that people don't get real about that, they probably do and you probably work with parents who do, but I think if we can go there with ourselves first, and reach out for support, not necessarily from our children or teenagers directly, but to get support that we need from other people where we can be honest and vulnerable and real about it and then come back and engage in a way that's genuine as opposed to self-righteous and you know, manipulative, which I think if we're honest about it, we often can be with our kids. That's a really good point. I do a lot of parent education, mostly with middle school and high school parents. And my feeling about what I see in these groups is that the need to share with other parents these below-the-surface-of-the-water yep. feelings, mm -hmm. the feelings of failure, the feelings of, um, am I doing it right? The connection is gone, and I miss that. My kid is growing up, and they're saying things to me that do hurt me, and yet I don't know what to do with how I feel in response to that. I take it all really personally. And, and then when they see other parents around the room expressing these kinds of things, I can just feel everyone goes, 
<sighs> yeah. Okay, well, and you're absolutely right. It's not our children's role to help us become more authentic, not directly. We're n- they are not our therapists. <laughs> and, and in right. fact, we, we will be learning a whole lot if, if we just, you know, make it through the first 18 years of being a parent. You're going to yeah. invariably learn a whole lot. Oh, yeah. But it seems to me that when we can get support from other parents, and that's not always easy because we're all hiding the fact that there are any problems at home at all. Yep. But when we can figure out a way to tap into a support network and be real within that network of parents, and then take that knowledge that we're not alone, that these are human responses and feelings, and then come back to the family and talk in a more egalitarian, open way with our kids. I know that things get much, much better. Absolutely. And I, you know, there's a book that Michelle and I have been reading off and on for the last couple of years that we love by Susan Jeffers, who wrote Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. She wrote a book on parenting. It's mostly geared for, you know, new parents sort of in the stage where where we are with with young ones. It's called I'm Okay, You're a Brat. (laughs) And it's great because, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a very honest, open conversation in this book about how challenging it is to be parents and to go into going from not having kids to having kids, you know, again, the stage where we are. But what she talks about, and I think this is relevant when we have young teens or older teenagers or even when our kids are grown and out of the house, is she calls it the conspiracy of silence. That nobody really talks about how hard it is. Nobody really talks about what's going on. And we all have these notions in our head that it's so much easier for everyone else. And there's clearly something wrong with us because it's not going so well. And what I think happens, again, and I'm not a believer that we sit around and, you know, commiserate and bitch and moan about stuff. Because I actually, I mean, look, my first book is called Focus on the Good Stuff. I think there's power in our words and we got to be really mindful and conscious of the stuff that we say. But it doesn't mean that we walk around lying and pretending that things are okay if they're not. And sometimes it's not only cathartic, but it's literally transformational, as you've seen when people talk honestly and openly. When we say, you know what, this is how it really is for me. This is how I really feel. Because we can start to transform some of those thoughts and feelings, if you will, and by sharing them with other people, we give permission for other people to go, oh, I'm not crazy. And from that real place, we can actually start to create things that are more genuinely positive, not just like sugarcoating the challenge. You know what I mean? It sounds a little like semantics sometimes when I talk about it this way, but I think there's a real power. You know, the stuff that's below the waterline is using that metaphor again of the iceberg is the real stuff of life, the real love, the real passion, the real fear, the real hurt, the real stuff. The stuff that's up on the surface is just superficial. It just never gets to the complaining and whining. You know, people, makes me nuts, Annie. People talk about teenagers in such a disrespectful way. Mm-hmm. Oh, teens. You know, people even say to me now, oh, they're really cute now, but wait till she's 13. I mean, they'll say that right in front of my daughter. And I don't even know how to react because part of me wants to like, smack them and part of me wants to yell at them and the other part of me just wants to grab Samantha and run away because I actually get scared when I hear people say that. Really? Is it going to be awful? You know? Well, no, no, no. I'm going to stop you for a second because, <laughs> no, no, again, compassionate heart here, Mike. Yes. My guess is that anyone who's saying that to you is stuck in a really bad place with their own teenage kids. Of course. And they're projecting that everybody has to be stumbling around in the dark when their kids get to this age because (laughs) nobody's really talking or listening to each other. And, you know, you just, what 
I would just say, sounds like it's been hard for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> would you like some? Here's a book. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll try to say that without any kind of cynicism or sarcasm or judgment in my voice. <laughs> I used to get that too. Just wait till they, oh, they're cute now. I remember that exactly. You reminded me. I'm laughing. Our kids are now 29 and 24. Okay. I'd be lying if I said there were no bumps in the road during the time they were in middle school and or high school. Of course there are. And as someone who studies human development and family dynamics, I know those bumps are absolutely normal and actually beneficial. Absolutely. <laughs> I really worry about those families that say, oh, no, we never had a moment's worry with this person. Right. Our kid was always perfect. It's like, come on. Yeah, exactly. Hello? <laughs> well, and you know, it's funny, Annie, I say this all the time talking about conflict because I think conflict is fundamental to all relationships, groups, families. And look, if you have a relationship where there's never any conflict, or you have a group of people or a family or a team, I do a lot of work in the business where there's no conflict it's a guarantee that someone, if not everyone in that environment, is lying. Has to. Because it's impossible. I mean, look, you and I could be wonderful people and totally love each other. If we're in relationship with each other as friends or we're married or whatever and we never fight and argue, something weird going on there. You know, and it's not that we have to be picking a fight or looking for it, but especially when we're talking about kids and through the course of their development, through the teenage years and all the changes that go on within them, it's inevitable and part of the process that they're going to push against us as parents or just in general. And the problem I think that we have is because, and I, I go into a bunch of specific detail and be yourself, everyone else has already taken about some simple things that we can do to more effectively engage in conflict in a healthy way, in a productive way, instead of, look, my tendency, even though I talk about this and teach it, you know, I believe very strongly we teach best what we most need to learn. So my tendency is to run away from conflict. I'm a nice guy. I don't like to get into it. I'd rather not. You know, I want people to like me. But I've trained myself and continue to over the course of my life knowing how important it is that my wife and I, that even now starting with my girls and I, with my family, with the people I work with, that we learn how to have conflict and disagree and even argue with each other with a sense of love and compassion and know that beautiful stuff comes out of it. It's one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways we grow and learn. But because it can be painful or we've had bad experiences with it, we don't do it. We say, oh, forget it. I can't talk to him about that. I can't say that to her. And this is often a justification again for not being authentic. People say to me all the time, you know, you and I were talking at the beginning of the conversation about appropriateness. And again, there is a place for us to notice, is it appropriate or not? Does it work or not? But again, we use that often as a justification to like, I'm not going to speak up. I'm not going to share my truth because last time I did that, they yelled at me. And, I, you know, basically, I don't want to get yelled at again. I don't want to feel that way. So then we justify and blame other people for us not being honest. Right. So let's talk specifically about how you can authentically handle conflict in a family situation. We could take it. How about um, two parents who are not on the same page with discipline, for example? Mm. How do that, you, that's a big one. I actually yeah. have some specific experience with Good. that. <laughs> that give, me, give me that. Go ahead. Well, here, so here's what happened. So Michelle, I'll just share what happened with me and Michelle. And this is what I coach couples to do. And, you know, we were having a real hard time with Samantha when she was two. And, and we realized we talked about so many things. We never really had a specific conversation about discipline. And we were doing things very differently. And finally, what happened after a series of you know, very difficult, painful situations. And Michelle and I actually getting into a couple of painful arguments about it once or twice, even in front of the girls. And then, you know, by ourselves, we just sat down and stopped and went, okay, 
can we take a step back from who we, we obviously both think we're right and we're mad at each other and all of that and just really share how we've been feeling. So that exercise before the if you really knew me, you know, just actually doing that to share here's how I'm feeling. And the technique that I teach in my book and in workshops is, is one called sharing withhold. So this is a great thing to do with your spouse in a proactive way. Hopefully not after a fight or an argument's already taken place, but just to be able to share things. And you say, look, there's something I've withheld from you. And your partner's response is, okay, would you like to tell me? And then you say whatever it is. And their response in this part, now this is a practice, you have to practice doing this, is just to say thank you and just hear whatever it is you have to say. And then as you go through it and both go back and forth with sharing things you've been withholding, once you get done, there may be some things to discuss. But Michelle and I finally really got to listen to each other and how we were feeling. And we were both feeling like we were failing and we were feeling like we were doing a bad job. And then we were mad at the other one and blaming each other for it not going well. And what we realized is we needed to find something that we could both align on. Now, and there's a gazillion books out there, and I'm sure you recommend lots. We happened to pick something called Love and Logic that we had found and read and of the many books. And I said, hey, babe, can we just try to do this? for the next couple months and see how it goes and both commit to being on the same page. And if it doesn't work, we'll pick something else, but like we got to find something, some language, some process, some methodology. And Michelle and I both work well with some kind of a structure and framework. So we did. And it was great because then we started doing regular withhold sessions with each other to give each other feedback on what we were noticing standing outside that was working and what wasn't working. And Michelle has unbelievable perspective and feedback on me that I can't have because she sees me from the outside. So we started to actually coach each other a little, which is always a little dangerous, you know, with your spouse, as I'm sure you know. But we started to coach each other a little and give each other some feedback. Hey, I noticed when you did that, it really seemed like Samantha responded well. And I noticed when this happened, from my perspective, it didn't seem like it worked as well or seemed like you got frustrated and, you know, whatever. So now we actually rely on each other for that kind of feedback. For, but what was a really contentious situation with us just about not even a year ago has actually turned into this really beautiful way that we actually connect and engage now. Sounds great. And I think if you have that level of trust with your spouse, hopefully you establish that before you decide to have children, mm -hmm. <laughs> then, <laughs> then the idea of trusting their feedback yeah. to be helpful rather than to get back at you or to use as a weapon in any way then you can absolutely have those kinds of conversations. And how wonderful then for your kids as they grow older and become more cognizant of the dynamic between you, that they're actually learning about conflict resolution by observing. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, Michelle and I have disagreed on this at times and we're still feeling our way through it, but I'm a big believer that it's okay for Michelle and I to have discussions that sometimes get a little intense in front of our girls. Now, again, I want to be appropriate about it given their age and all of that, but one of the things that I don't want to do is do this thing where we'll never have a disagreement or an argument in front That's of impossible. our children. It's you, impossible. Some, someday you'll be in the car and you won't yeah, be able to. <laughs> it, just, it happens, but I think if our girls can see mommy and daddy get frustrated with each other, disagree, even fight and argue, but they do it in a way that's loving and they come to a resolution and it's okay and everyone's okay at the end of it, I think that's a really healthy message to send. And you know, there's going to be a moment, and there already has been, and I'm sure there'll be many more where she and I say things to each other, boy, I wish I hadn't said that, especially in front of the girls, but that's life. And I'm hoping that in the process of that, the love and the commitment and the honesty comes through. And again, I think if we make 
agreements with our spouse and in our family of how we operate and do the best we can to hold to those, but give ourselves all you know, some slack to know we're human and we're going to screw it up (laughs) and we can say sorry and we can say, oh, I messed that up. I didn't mean to do that. I want to do it a different way. And we also get to learn and we get to change. I'm sure, Annie, if you look back on stuff you did when your kids were young or maybe what you did with the first one and then with the second one, you learn and you went, boy, that was silly. I'll do it different this time. And you did. Of course. And that's how life goes, right? Yeah, that is. And I think it's very valuable even in the midst of it. Yep. To be able to say, not only to your spouse, but to your kids, you know, I'm really sorry I snapped at you, hon. Yeah. That really had nothing to do with you. I was stressed out about something else. Yep. Before we close, and we're coming to the end of this really amazing conversation, is I picked up something in your book about, now I'm going to push a button here, I'm going to... The words calm down. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I picked that up and I thought, well, this is really interesting. And I'll give you just a little background in the fact that I've written a book called Too Stressed to Think. And it's a teen guide for staying sane when life makes you crazy. Yeah. And Too Stressed to Think spends a lot of time talking about the benefits of calming down so that you can really think about what your next best move is. And so I was, I was struck when I read this in your book that... You don't like to be told to calm down, and you don't recommend it. So let's get a little <laughs> controversial here. <laughs> well, let me just say, I, 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 what I shared in the book, and I'll give a little background on it, it's not that I don't think it, I think it's a great idea for me and everyone to calm down, to create a sense of peace in our lives, to create a sense of you know serenity, whatever that means to us and for us. And believe me, it's something that I both struggle with and have from the long as I can remember, and desire in my own life. What I don't like is being told to calm down in that, like, you're being too much. Will you just calm down and relax and uh. stop making such a big deal? You know what I mean? Because now, look, again, depending on who says it and how they say it, it can land in a very different way. But my saying to that is I think that many of us, and I happen to be a very passionate person and always have been, but whether we consider ourselves passionate or not, there's this way in which we've been trained since we were really little. And I see myself doing it with Samantha, my three-year-old, when she throws a fit at the grocery store, you know, calm down, quiet down, be appropriate, you know, behave well and all that stuff. That so much of the passion and the fire and the excitement and the ideas and the emotion that we have as human beings, I think has gotten calmed down out of us. And while I think it's great for us to practice being more peaceful in life and not overreacting to things, what I do think we can do in a beautiful, very conscious way is channel our passion and our energy and not feel like we have to apologize for ourselves. You know, Annie, I've spent too much of my life, and I'm sure there's lots of people out there listening, sort of apologizing. I'm sorry. I know I'm coming on kind of strong. I'm sorry if I'm talking too loud. You know, it's like, enough already. Let's just be ourselves. And again, if I offend people or annoy them, which I'm sure I do, so be it. And I don't mean that in a kind of deal with it. That's just how I am, you know, but I mean it in a kind of like, what if we all just had more freedom to be how we are? And if you need to give me some feedback, okay, fine, let's have that conversation. But in a genuine way, not in some, there are these unwritten rules about how to be in life and we have to follow them or else we're in trouble. You know what I mean? 
I see there's some nuance here. It sounds like <laughs> when you hear calm down, what you're really hearing is shut up. <laughs> yeah. Or shut up or it's not, it's not okay to, you know, people. Or oh, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Right. You know, oh, you think too much, you talk too much, you go on and on. You know, and look, there's some truth and validity to that with me and in general. So it's not that I can't hear the feedback, but what I think that how we've internalized a lot of us. Now, not everyone gets their button pushed like I do when they hear the words calm down, but we all have certain things that people have told to us or were told to us as children, as teenagers, and throughout our lives that if we think about it, now it's not anyone's fault. I'm not blaming this on my parents or society or anything because I think we all have to take responsibility for how we internalize it. But at some level, you and I and everyone listening has some mechanism in us that we've internalized some messages that we were taught that tell us, don't be fully who I am be some version of me that people are going to like or that people will respond to or will respect or whatever. And, you know, that's just part of being human. But I think the more we can dismantle that and the more we can allow who we really are to show up, the more free we are in life. And you know what? Some people aren't going to like that. And that's life, <laughs> you know, and the less attached we are to that, the easier life becomes. And I would say that tempered with what you've just said, which mm -hmm. I think is really good advice, is the notion that sometimes we need to pause mm -hmm. and reflect. Yes. Because when our heart is racing 170 plus beats per minute, <laughs> we are not likely to make very thoughtful choices. Yes. And you could pick up the newspaper any day <laughs> and see what happens, especially with young young people. Yeah. When they don't recognize that they're heading for a cliff. Yeah. And so the calm down, pause for a second, and see if what I'm about to do or say going to increase my connection with this person. How about that? That's great. Then I say go for it. Absolutely go for it. Do not hold back. Yes. Well, and yeah, I mean, I th it's beautiful. You're a lot, what you're talking about is consciousness, it's awareness, it's being present. And those, to me, those, all those aspects, that really has a lot to do with, and they're very connected to authenticity. You know, being in the moment with our children, as we've been talking about parenting our, you know, young teenagers or with whoever, if we're actually present and conscious in the moment, we actually often know exactly what we think, how we feel, what we want. Mm -hmm. The question is, are we willing to say those things or do those things? And maybe sometimes, maybe not. You know, and I think that there is, you know, what you're saying is absolutely true in that letting ourselves kind of get ahead of ourselves, if you will, or just go off on passionate impulses isn't necessarily the most healthy thing we can do in life. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a look with all this stuff, it's paradoxical almost everything I talk about, and I realize that, which is part of what, and I appreciate the question and even some of the challenge on it, because this isn't cut and dried stuff. This really is, you know, li and I, I, I think life is beautiful and wonderful, and I also think it's incredibly complex and confusing. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, doing, I hear you. <laughs> doing the best we can to figure it out in this moment. And, you know, I think one of the fears that many of us have, and I know this is a fear of mine in terms of even writing books or going out and speaking and teaching, is like, well, what the heck do I know? And 
what if I decide in a year or five years or 10 years that everything I said before was really stupid and I think the exact opposite, you know? And I guess you'll can, have to write another book. <laughs> I guess so. But, you know, that can stop any of us from doing anything in life and waiting until we think it's perfect, waiting until we know we're right. I don't think there's anything about right. I just think about, is it working for me now? Can I share it? And can someone else benefit from it? Exactly. That's it. And there's always that caveat. No, you can't tell anybody what to do anyway, right, Mike? <laughs> exactly. And look, and like I said, I think we teach best we most need to learn. Well, but if you want to get in touch with how full of it you are, just you know, write a book on authenticity. It'll be right in your face. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here with your authentic self this morning. Uh, I want to tell everyone the book is Be Yourself. Everyone else has already taken Transform Your Life with the Power of Authenticity. My guest has been... Mike Robbins. And Mike, before we close, can you tell us where people can get more information about your work? The best place to get it is actually online at beyourselfbook.com. You can find out more about me and about the book and all kinds of stuff there. Beyourselfbook.com. That's great. Thanks again for your time today, Mike. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Bye. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. For more information about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest Lynn Goodwin will discuss her book, You Want Me to Do What? Journaling for Caregivers. Till next time, happy parenting. <laughs>